Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Logan campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. I am so privileged that I get to work directly with 35 of our Gateway Beyond workers, uh, many of them uh, you are very familiar with. We have Aaron and Shandini here, Gateway Beyond Workers, right here from the Logan campus, but also Michael Deacon, and I know you have a connection with many, many of our Gateway Beyond Workers. And wasn't it wonderful to see Morris this morning and to to hear Morris just sharing his legacy of 45 years as a missionary just reaching out to the people around him. And last Sunday night at Beyond Month, at Beyond Night, Celebration Night, Morris was sharing, um, and so were Roger and Lisa, and I had to hold up Michael Deacon. Uh, But they were all asked, how did they sense to step into mission work? How did they know God was calling them? Or what prompted them to step out and become missionaries, giving, in Morris's case, 45 years of his life. And one after another, uh, the three that shared, Morris, Roger, and Lisa. Morris used to be an um, agriculturalist. He had a degree in agriculture. Uh, Roger White was an industrial chemist, or still is an industrial chemist. Not that I know what an industrial chemist is, but it sounds pretty impressive. And Lisa West Newman was a stay-at-home mum. And one after another, they all shared how this sense of stepping into mission work full-time, it came in a place of them just saying, Father, there's got to be more to life than what I'm experiencing, than what I'm doing as an agriculturalist, an industrial chemist, a mum. And and I know for me, I I also had the privilege, uh, 29 years serving on the mission field, starting in uh, the red light district of uh, Amsterdam in Holland, working with drug addicts and women trapped in uh, (coughs) commercial sex work and, and then moving across into India and South Asia for many, many years. I was a school teacher here in Logan. I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I think many of you maybe have heard me sharing this before. At the age of 21, through a friend who came to what is today Gateway, uh, shared the gospel with me and brought me along to what was then Holland Park Baptist. And I gave my life to Jesus. And I was teaching at the time here in Kingston and so spent my first nearly eight years as a primary school teacher uh, here in Kingston. But the whole time, why I knew it was such a a high calling to to impact children's lives and and to make a difference uh, into the young children that I was teaching, I just felt an uneasiness of saying, Lord, surely there's more uh, to, to my life, to, to what you're calling me to, that, that, Father, I had a desire to live for a greater purpose, to, to say, Father, I want my life to count. I know I've got one life to lead, one life to live, and, Father, I want it to make a difference. I had had friends that uh, had gone to Youth with a Mission, YWAM, 
And they all came back and their lives were transformed. They were so passionate and so radically changed and on fire for Jesus. And so I thought, well, I'll give six months to going to do my discipleship training school with YWAM and uh, have a nice holiday in Europe, take a year off work and uh, come back and be a school teacher. And so I headed off to YWAM for what I thought was a six-month school, which, let me tell you, turned into those 29 years. During the school, I headed off to India as part of my practical uh, placement. And uh, it was actually while I was in India, it was, uh, it was such a pivotal moment in my life. I was 28 years old at this point, nearly 29 and I was in a slum, and we were literally stepping over human feces, and there was sewage everywhere, and we were sharing about Jesus to Hindus, to, to people who have over 330 million gods. And as we were sharing about Jesus, many of these people had never heard the name of Jesus and when we shared the gospel, the good news about a God who so loved them that he came to this earth to die on a cross for them because of his great love, it was such a response of wanting to know God's love. And there was about 500 people there and there were eight of us in the team and all 500 came forward wanting prayer, crying, weeping, wanting to know this God who loved them that greatly. And I remember as I stood there in this slum, this little country girl from far north Queensland, this primary school teacher from Brisbane, just being overwhelmed because I couldn't speak the language. I didn't, we had one translator with us who spoke Marathi, the language, and 500 people. And I just remember crying, crying. And while I was in that state of just weeping and saying, Lord, what difference can I make? I felt the Lord challenge me from a passage in Matthew chapter 7, where it said, when Jesus saw the crowds of people, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And it goes on to say he had compassion on them. And in the midst of that, I felt the Lord challenge me, Helena, even if you can't speak the language, even if you don't know what you can possibly do to make a difference, will you have compassion on these people? Will you love these people with my love? And that was really a turning point for me to say, okay, Lord, there's not much I can do, but what I can do is I can love people whether it's through a smile, a prayer, a touch. And that started me on this journey of living life with real purpose, with a sense of calling. Now, some of you may have heard the name of Rick Warren. Rick Warren's uh, quite a, a famous uh, pastor from Saddleback Church in the States. He wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. And it's one of the best-selling books of all time. Over 50 million 
copies of this book has, have been sold. Can you imagine writing a book with 50 million copies being sold? I mean, Lord, bring in the money. Yeah, that's the way to do it, Dave. You know, we, we just need to churn out a book, bro, and you, you're made for the rest of your life. You and Shardy can live in Geneva, on Lake Geneva, go skiing, you know. <laughs> but uh, Rick Warren, in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, he talks about how many people today, and I believe we see it in our midst, we see it in the church as well, many people today live with what Rick calls spiritual emptiness. Spiritual emptiness is simply, it looks like this. I get up, I go to work, I come home, I have dinner, I watch TV, I go to bed. I get up, I go to work, I come home, I watch TV, I go to bed. I get up, I go to work, I come home, because it's a Wednesday night, maybe I go to a Bible study, I come home, I go to sleep, I get up, I go to work, I, and on and on it goes. And on a Sunday, I get up, I go to church, I come home, I watch TV, I go to sleep, I get up, and it's this cycle of just what Rick Warren calls not living, but simply existing. And many of you are shaking your heads. Many of us, this life that we're called to live, this abundant life, is, is not abundant. It's simply existing and going through the routines of getting up and going to work and going to sleep and getting up and going to work and going to sleep. In Rick's book, The Purpose Driven Life, he says that living with significance directly correlates, there's a correlation to understanding the purpose for our life. In other words, if I am to live with significance, if I am to live with intentionality and not just live in this spiritual routine, this spiritual emptiness, this dryness of life, I must understand the purpose for my life. That Rick goes on to say that living with purpose can never be found within ourselves. It's always about living for a purpose bigger than ourselves. It's for living for something outside of ourselves. You know, with the fall of man in rebellion and sin, Essentially, people say we curved in on ourselves. In other words, we placed ourselves at the center of the universe. Martin Luther, a famous reformationist, he says, in covatus in se, that's a Latin term meaning at the fall, when Adam and Eve chose to rebel, they curved in on themselves and they placed themselves at the center of everything. Don't you tell me what to do, God. If I want to eat from that tree, I will. If I want to, me, me, me. You and I were never meant to be the center of the universe, the center of the world. We were always called as his image bearers to live for his glory 
to live for his purposes. Not my will be done, but yours be done. And that's why Jesus, when Jesus came to this earth, incarnation as one of us, fully God yet fully human, he came to show us as a human being how we were meant to live, not as a center of the universe. He talks in Philippians about not looking to our own interests, but looking to the interests of others. And in humility, considering others better than ourselves. You and I were always meant to live with our eyes on God and with others. You know, in in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, he is speaking to the, the churchgoers. He is speaking to the Israelites, the holy people. And they were complaining to the prophet Isaiah about why is it God doesn't see the religious things that we're doing? Our prayers, why doesn't he see when we're fasting? And I, in Isaiah 58, the prophet writes to these religious people, Isn't this the fast that I have chosen? This is what the Isaiah prophet is saying that the Lord is saying. The type of fast I have chosen is to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to tear off every yoke. Isn't it to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and the homeless into your homes, to clothe the naked when you see him, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? In other words, the prophet Isaiah, just as Jesus said, and just as Rick Warren said, To live life with purpose, the life you and I have been given, is on on the behalf of others around us. That we are to genuinely care, genuinely care about others. That we are not the center of the universe. That we are not the center of, okay, God, Jesus, yes, you died for me so that I could go to heaven when I die. But for so much more, that I have been saved, that I have been healed, that I have been blessed. Why? For the sake of others, to untie the chains of oppression, to to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked to bring love and compassion to those around us. And you know, that is the nature of oppression. When we are called to set the oppressed free, the nature of oppression, I looked it up, it's a lack of care, this is a definition, the lack of care or concern in the unjust treatment of another or the fact that others are pressed down. Today, we live in a world where oppression abounds. Just last night, I had dinner with two friends. They come from uh, a very restrictive regime. And that government in that nation is extremely (coughs) oppressive and it pushes people down, holding them under a yoke of oppression. 
But you know what? It's not just the women in Bangladesh who are oppressed, who lack educational uh, possibilities like Morris talked about. Many, many nations, women especially, have no access to education, have no access to employment, have no access to, to, to rising up in their status. They are oppressed. But it's not just overseas. Right here in Australia, we have people that are oppressed, who are overlooked, who are marginalized, who are suffering under yokes, maybe not of slavery, although trafficking and slavery does happen even in our own nation. But they're under oppression where they don't know where the next meal on their table's even coming from. We only need to read the papers of people who are facing oppression because they're having to live in their cars, because they can't find a place to live. They're trapped in these cycles of oppression. You know, I have found in my life, the more I poured my life out to others, the more I found significance and purpose in why God put me on this earth. I found when I shared the bread with the hungry, when I gave um, finances to helping others that were struggling, when I gave clothing to those that were, were naked, were cold, when I spoke up on behalf of people, refugees, migrants, asylum seekers, any that are oppressed, children, the more I gave my life away, the more I found my life. And that's a biblical principle. The more we give, the more we get in return. And I won't say it's always easy. It's not. <laughs> you know, I, I, I would much rather just have a nice bank account with a good superannuation and easy retirement, and I can try and hoard and live my life like that, but I believe that just leads to that cycle of spiritual emptiness. Rick Warren goes on to say one more statement. What matters most is not the duration of your life, but the donation of it. That's a profound statement. Not the duration of life, but the donation of it. You know, King Solomon, he was known as uh, one of the wisest men. He prayed for wisdom. King Solomon in Psalm 72, he writes a lot about, God, give me greater influence that kings may bow down before me. Give me greater wisdom that... The gifts will come from the Queen of Sheba. And he goes on and on about, God, make me greater. Now, we can read that and go, oh, well, he's full of himself. That's what an Aussie would say. <laughs> Fancy praying things like that, you know. But we have to read it in the context. The reason Solomon is asking for greater significance is not to place himself in a higher position, but why, in, in verses 12 and 14, it says... 
so that the king, he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Solomon was asking for more significance, more power, more wealth, more whatever it would be, not for himself so he'd have a big bank account and live a life of luxury so that he could pour it out on behalf of the oppressed and the afflicted and the pushed down and those that are treated unjustly and the marginalized that are all around us. Every single day, people who are pushed down and oppressed, living in separation, in the bondage of sin, who have no hope. And Jesus recognized this. And that's why at the start of his ministry, we're told that he goes into the synagogue on this particular Day And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is handed to him. And Jesus unrolls the scroll and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty, freedom, those who are oppressed. And to proclaim the year of the Lord. And then he hands back the scripture and he sits down. He says, today that is fulfilled. Again, Jesus is model. You and I are called just as Jesus to set the oppressed free. To bind up broken hearts. To live, to pour out our life for others. And Jesus begins that by saying the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do those things. But it wasn't just the spirit that was on Jesus because we know that Jesus, before he ascended on high, he told his people to wait, to wait because the Holy Spirit was coming, the helper was coming and the spirit at Pentecost was poured out on the believers and at Pentecost which was last Sunday was the celebration of Pentecost the coming of the Holy Spirit we understand again that you and I have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, this stream of living water that John talks about. We have been anointed just as Jesus with the same Holy Spirit to live our lives for his glory, for his purposes, for a bigger purpose than just ourselves. For the oppressed, the pushed down, for the trodden on, to make the world a better place. Heal the world, make it a better place. That, I have to have a song in every sermon because otherwise, you know, song, a dance. Otherwise, what's the point? So that I can die and have superannuation? I'm not saying we shouldn't, but it's... It's for others. You know, a few years ago, 
I had the privilege of running a training workshop in Macau. Macau um, is a special, it was a special administrative uh, region of the People's Republic of China. And Macau is famous for its casinos. It's like the gambling capital of the world, which I never knew till I got to Macau. And in 19, when was it? 1999, the, it was overseen, administered by the Portuguese government. And in 1999, it was given back to the People's Republic of China. Now, let's go forward, uh, go back a little bit. I met a, a man and a woman, a lady named Marjorie and her husband, George, which you'll see a photo of. And uh, Marjorie was telling me the story how her and George uh, felt very early on, let me just make sure I get the dates right, in 93, they sensed they were in Brazil, they were Portuguese speakers. And remember, Macau was administered as a Portuguese colony under the People's Republic of China. Marjorie and George felt that they were to go to Macau and in obedience, they stepped out as missionaries and in 93 headed off to Macau. Well, when they got there, these Portuguese Brazilians who didn't speak English and certainly did not speak Cantonese, the language uh, in that part of the world, they realized Macau, even though it came under the Portuguese government, nobody spoke Portuguese. They only spoke Cantonese and Mandarin. And so here are Marjorie and George, these two Brazilians, in the middle of Macau. They don't speak the language. It's not that they went with a mission agency. They were just kind of there going, Lord, why did you call us here? What's the point? What, what difference can we possibly make? Now, fast forward four years later. So they've been there four years, scratching their heads going, okay, we're trying to learn Mandarin. We're trying to learn Cantonese. We don't understand why God's brought us here. Four years later, Marjorie just happens to be uh, she found a newspaper article, and because she'd been learning a little bit of the language, she was able to understand parts of the article. And it was a photo of a one-day-old baby. What had happened is a cleaner who'd been cleaning the streets had heard crying and had found a one-day-old baby in the trash can, and there were rats that were, that were eating it. It's a terrible story. And this newspaper article was talking about this one-day-old baby. And that just gripped Marjorie and George's heart. And they were praying for this baby, and they ended up contacting the Social Welfare Bureau in Macau, just saying, you know, is there anything we can do to... This, this story is just so tragic. Well, after two months, the Social Welfare Bureau contacted Marjorie and George out of the blue and said, look, we haven't been able to find a family to adopt the baby. Would you be willing to take this baby? And so Marjorie and George said, yes, we, we can take this baby. And so what started as Marjorie and George taking one abandoned baby that was thrown in the trash started in... 1997, they, they started a, a hostel called the Cradle of Hope. 
And Cradle of Hope is, is like a family home for, for children, babies from the ages of zero to three. And then from that, they grew to what they called the Fountain of Hope. Now, you can Google these institutions after the service if you're interested, which was for three years old to 18 years old. And to date, they have had a 1,000 children, a 1,000 children go through their organizations, go through their homes. And today, so I met Marjorie about four years ago. Today, Marjorie and George are consultants for the Macau government on child adoption policies. They help write policies on fostering children and on the welfare of children. It is amazing. Oh, yeah, big deal. Whoop-de-doo. I'd rather go home and watch TV. No, it is amazing. And as a matter of fact, and I believe this will, I, this is my prediction, they ended up writing a children's book, Marjorie and the Mouse. And this book, you know, it's, it's quite a, a children's PG version of how the little mouse tries to help the baby, but really the little mouse was a big rat chewing on the baby, yeah. I believe one day it'll become a, a, a Hollywood movie because it's really quite an amazing story. Well, Marjorie was this woman. What difference can I make? Why is God, how, how is God even going to use me? And that's no different to Lyndall. Lyndall Brunner, one of our Gateway Beyond workers in 1993, I used to teach with Lyndall here in Kingston. Lyndall and I were primary school teachers in the same school. And Lyndall felt God was calling her to live for a bigger purpose. So in 93, she headed off to Thailand and she pioneered what's known as LIFT, the Life Impact Foundation in, Tha in Thailand. And just when Lyndall was home recently, or if you get her newsletters, you would have read this, um, this Life Impact Foundation is involved in helping children stay in their families and in their communities. And so they help them with income generation projects to help the families generate income to feed these additional mouths. And she was telling me about a little boy, Nong Smart. Nong Smart lived with his uh, grandparents because his mother uh, passed away and his father went to another province to work. And Nong Smart's grandparents, they were flat out feeding the family every month, getting food on the table, to the point that their hut had no walls and it was just basically falling down. And so Lyndall and the lift team were able to get materials and builders, which created a whole employment opportunity in the village to build a new hut, a new house for this family with walls and with a door, and, and it impacted the whole community. <coughs> what difference could Lyndall make? She impacted a community through one simple act of helping that family. So people like Marjorie, people like Lyndall, people like Michael Deacon, people who dare to say, Lord, would you use me? Ordinary people. God took them at their word as they poured their life out for another to open literally the doors for the oppressed. But you know what? They're no different 
to each one of us sitting in this room. They're not these superhero pin-up people where you look at Marjorie and you go, wow, or you look at Lyndall or Michael or you hear these stories. In the book of Acts, we see a church that has come together. It could be Gateway Logan. In this particular instance, it's the church of Antioch. And we see that after a time of, uh, we're told in Acts chapter 13, while they were worshipping, the Lord in fasting, it kind of sounds like Gateway Logan, worshipping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. Marjorie, Lyndall, Michael, Barnabas, Saul, no different to any of us sitting in this room. When God's people came together, hungry, in a place of worship, in a place of saying, God, here we are, use us, God spoke to them. Now, again, what we need to understand about the church in Antioch, it's very important. We remember, I I referred to the fact when Jesus ascended, he said, wait for the Holy Spirit. And he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Sumeria, and to the ends of the earth. That statement of waiting for the Holy Spirit, Pentecost was 15 years earlier, where Jesus had ascended and said, wait for the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit came, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now, 15 years later, 15 years later, here's the church praying, crying out, and they're told to set apart Barnabas and Saul to the work that he has called them to. What we need to understand is the early church, those 15 years prior, had been faithful to be his witnesses, but really only in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, which is, in other words, saying they had been faithful in Jerusalem and the West Bank, if you think of modern-day geography. In other words, it'd be like saying they were faithful in Brisbane and to, out to Ormo. That's how faithful they'd been. Beanley, Ormo, that's the faithfulness that they had been his witnesses. No one had gone to the ends of the earth. And now 15 years later, in a place of hunger and thirst and people crying out to God, God was saying, I am calling you, set apart Barnabas and Saul to open the door to the ends of the earth, that all the oppressed, all the forgotten, all the pressed down would come to hear what I have done for them. And so here we see Paul and Barnabas heading out as what is known as Paul's first missionary journey. Fifteen years later, they head to what is today modern-day Cyprus and Turkey. That was the very first to the ends of the earth missionary journey. And then we see them, they return 10 months later and we read the report that they give to the church. It would be like Michael coming back and giving you a report. Finally, we're told in Acts 14, they made it to Attila and they caught the ship back to Antioch where it had all started, launched by God's grace and now safely home by God's grace, 
on arrival, they got the church together and reported on their trip, telling in detail how God had used them to throw the door of faith wide open so that people from all nations could come streaming in. You see, Paul and Barnabas were empowered and filled and led by the Holy Spirit to open new doors in new places so that more people could hear the gospel. And that is the same for you and I today. We have been given the Holy Spirit. And you and I, when we're set apart and sent, which we all are every single day, set apart, sent, filled with the Holy Spirit, are called to open new doors in new places so that more people could hear the gospel. But what holds us back? What holds us back? Just this weekend, up at the GMS retreat, I was talking to someone, a gateway person, someone who's doing GMS, and they were sharing with me their fear, and I believe fear is one of the things that holds us back. If I really, if I really was serious and obedient, I'm scared what God would call me to do. And I said, oh, what do you mean? Like scared like he's going to make you go to Africa or India? Well, the person said, yeah. And I thought, not in judgment, but I just thought, wow. Talk about getting to the end of your life and going, Man, I regret that I never stepped out. Does fear hold you back? Does comfort hold you back? Eh, I'd much rather watch TV. I'd much rather, you know, why do I want to go on the streets of Logan with the neighbor's van or help Heather with on-track ministry? It's cold. I'd rather be at home watching Sunrise on TV eating my breakfast. What holds us back? Is it apathy? Is it fear? Is it comfort? You know, just like Paul and Barnabas, filled, anointed with the Holy Spirit, you and I have that same Holy Spirit. We have all of the Holy Spirit. The question is, does the Holy Spirit have all of us? For many of us, and I know in my own life, it's like a house. Our life is like a house. You know, we, I stand at the door and I knock. Jesus says in Revelations, all who open the door. It's like this is my life, my house. I've been given all of the Holy Spirit. And it's almost like I say, okay, God, thank you that I have all of you come into my life, but just don't come into this room. It's like when we have guests, we quickly shut the door because we don't want them to see the mess in the bedroom or something. Lord, don't come into this room because in this room, Lord, is where I have all my secret little, I don't know, addictions, little things that I don't want you to know about those little areas in my life. And it's like, it's like we say, Lord, come into my life, all of 
have Holy Spirit, but, 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 but this room here, keep that shut because it's my precious things in here, my precious. And, and it's like we want to control in case God calls us to open up and give that stuff to him. And suddenly, God forbid, he would actually call me to, to go out and, and, and share with someone or to go to the far side of the sea. And I'm scared that he'll do that. So far better, I just let him have this part. But you know, for many of us, we need to remember that is why we're told do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not resist the Holy Spirit. It's so easy for us when the Holy Spirit nudges us to say something or to do something or to give something to go, no, no. And it's like we build up a resistance to his nudging and his voice gets quieter and quieter because we keep resisting. We keep quenching. You know, I think for many of us, that spiritual emptiness of life, wake up, go to work, come home, watch TV, go to sleep, wake up, come. It just goes on and on because we're scared of what would happen if we really poured out our lives. And I think for many of us, I, I at least found in my own life, and the band can come up, for many of us, we're scared, what difference can I possibly make to the oppressed or to the poor or those that are suffering injustice? I know for me, when I was, particularly when I was working in places like India, you know, even if I gave 10 rupees, 10 rupees is like 20 cents in modern Australian money, even if I gave 10 rupees to every beggar and every need I saw on the streets of India, there's over 1.3 billion people in India, I would need a whole lot of money. And so sometimes for me, in the, in the face of the enormous needs I saw in India, you know, I'd be sitting on a dirt floor in a, in a tin hut with cardboard and plastic and I'd go home in the evenings and I'd have my hot shower and I'd lay on my double bed and I would lay there thinking, okay, my bed, the space of my bed is bigger than, than the floor of that hut that 10 people are living in, in India. Lord, what difference is my life even making in this nation? And, and it's like thinking, well, what's the point? I can't make a difference. What's the point? And it reminds me of this story, the starfish story. An old man had a habit of early morning walks on the beach. One day after a storm, he saw a human figure in the distance moving like a dancer. And as, as he came closer, he saw that it was a young woman and she was not dancing, but was reaching down to the sand, picking up a starfish and very gently throwing it into the ocean. Young lady, he asked, why are you throwing starfish into the ocean? The sun is up and the tide is going out. And if I do not throw them back, she replied, they will die. But 
fish and starfish all along it. You cannot possibly make a difference. The young lady listened politely, paused, then bent down, picked up another starfish and threw it into the sea, past the breaking waves, saying, it made a difference to that one. It made a difference to that one. And that's what Gateway Beyond, that's what the church is all about. The church, why we come here every Sunday is not just to have good worship and have tea and coffee and I'm going to heaven when I die and I feel warm and and I feel the goodness of God and so it's me, me, me. It's not about me. It's about opening the doors. Opening the doors to those that have yet to hear on the streets of Logan, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. It's not just going over the seas, although some of you, God may call you to make a difference overseas. We have been given the Holy Spirit. We have been anointed, empowered by Holy Spirit to make a difference. You know, a few months ago, I was here and Jason was preaching. And he was preaching about the value of the one, the one cent coin, how we have a God who leaves the 99 for the one. I was the one. You were the one that someone reached out and shared and made a difference. Who is the one in your life that God is calling you to open the door to the gospel, that God is calling you to speak life and hope, the one that God is calling you to feed the hungry, to to clothe the naked, to take the chains off the oppressed. Who is the one? And I want you right now, church, just like the church in Antioch that fasted and prayed and God set them apart and sent them out. For some of you, if not all of you this morning, God is giving you one person to say, I have called you, empowered you with my spirit and set you apart to go to the one And this morning, let's just stand. Let's stand. This morning, some of you need to respond. And just like the church that laid hands on them and set them apart and sent them out, you need your church family to set their hands on you and to pray and to send you out to the one. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.